Greetings and welcome to this week's performance of My Favourite Flop. At this time, we ask that you turn up the volume on all cell phones, laptops and car stereos as loud as possible. And now, sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Welcome back! Welcome back, children. You did that way better than me. Good job. It's our spooky episode. It's Halloween! It is literally, I'm so excited because last Halloween basically didn't exist. I mean, it did not. Can we talk about that for a second? Halloween it, got canceled last year. Like, but it really got canceled because we like we we like made it through the summer of the pandemic and we're like, we're gonna open up a little bit. And then it's like, no, people are getting sick again. So on that note, for this spooky episode, Christina, what have you been listening to this week? Okay, so I listened to something that isn't spooky, but I have a feeling a lot of people will be dressing up in these characters for Halloween if they're going out. Totally on brand. Yeah. So I listened to the unofficial musical adaptation of Bridgerton. Okay. Okay. All right. So I... I, like most people, had found it on TikTok and I was like, what is this? What's happening? And these two young ladies like wrote were writing songs based around Bridgerton after it came out. Okay. And I was like, this is crazy. Like these are actually pretty interesting, well-written songs, you know, and they're because TikTok, especially at the time, was so short, it was only like 30 seconds, right? Right. Maybe a minute. It was interesting, like, following both of their journeys, you know, on their individual accounts. And it's become a thing, right? Like, they went and they performed at Lincoln Center Honors. Right. And they've put out an album, which you can go listen to on Spotify. Which is insane. It, that, like, Ratatouille the Musical having its thing yeah. was big. This this one having an album? This is a oh whole other situation. To the point where both of these girls, Abigail Barlow and Emily Bear. Abigail Barlow is the vocalist and also the partial lyricist. And then Emily Bear is the composer and also helped with lyrics. Okay. They got signed by CAA. But the music, I was interested to see what is this musical, right? Because now you've got two strong female musical theater writers who have become famous through the virtual world. Right. What is that? Which is so cool. Right. Which is really cool. And so like what's coming next? for the world of musical theater from these two ladies. Right. What is this sound that everyone's attaching to and where is it going to go, right? right? I don't think they're going to make an official Bridgerton musical with any of this, but what I found really interesting is one of the things that Abigail Barlow, the vocalist, talks about a lot on her TikTok about healthy vocal singing because I guess she had some issues and she's really young, so that's really sad that she oh. ever had issues. Yes. Um, but she's like, no, I mix. I'm not going to just belt everything. You don't have to belt everything. And so she has this really beautiful contemporary soprano mix that's very straight toned. It doesn't have a lot of vibrato in it and has a lot of air in it without it being like whispery. Um, And it's a healthy sound, right? And so she's been perpetuating the idea of this sound into the singing community 
you know, into the zeitgeist of the singing community okay. in the sense of like, you know, young kids listening to singers. And I just find it interesting. A lot of the music is really repetitive and isn't that interesting. But there's one song that I really fell in love with that I was like, I kind of want this for my book. Okay. Um, And it is uh, the younger sister who's like a tomboy and really doesn't want to get married. She doesn't want to do any of the dating stuff. She really hates it, right? And it's called If I Were a Man. And it's so fun. Like it has Oh, I have this, to go listen to You that. have to go listen to it. If I were a man, da 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 Like it's got this like very classic Broadway sound that they've okay. made work with the rest of the show, which is very um like lyrical contemporary feel to it. And yeah, no, I found it really interesting. You know, look, Pasek and Paul, they did their thing with edges and look at them now. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And um Rachel Bloom, like, look at her, all of those quirky YouTube videos, and then she gets crazy ex-girlfriend. So maybe, maybe these girls are the next step in that evolution. Um, and it seems like it because this is viral, I think, in a way that even bigger than those were. That's awesome. I love that you listened to that. I've been meaning to get to it because I think it's so cool that it happened. So, Bobby, what have you been listening to? I'm assuming well, I, you stayed on brand. I stayed on brand, but I cheated a little bit. I didn't okay. listen. I watched Sweeney Todd <laughs> in concert. And Ooh. Sweeney Todd in concert, it is probably my favorite version of the show. And that's with Patti Lapone, George Hearn, Neil Patrick Harris, Lisa Roman, and Davis Gaines. Like it, Davis Gaines was in that? He, yes, he's Anthony. Oh. Yeah. How funny. And to me, it's Sweeney Todd the way you want to hear it with like a giant orchestra and with some of the the best talent to do it and Patti Lapone acting. And I say that because as much as, as interesting as the John Doyle revival was, there were some very interesting directing and acting choices that oh, took I, place. Oh, I saw it. I saw it. And I think Patti was a little disservice because she had already done it at the Philharmonic mm. for Sweeney Todd in concert. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, if you're going to do a different production of Sweeney Todd, of a show, and it doesn't even need to be Sweeney Todd, you're you're going to go out of the way to maybe make different choices. You know what I mean? And to I'm like, try. And I'm like, but you already made all the right ones in concert. So like, it just, it hurt me that that happened. I don't know. I'm just so glad that it was filmed. I'm yeah. so glad that Sweeney Todd in I, concert I should was go, filmed. I should go watch that. I haven't. I've seen the bootleg of the original. Okay. And then I actually saw in person the revival on Broadway. The Patty um, Lapone revival. Yeah. Okay. All right. I, it was interesting. I actually really liked that revival. I know there are a lot of opinions, opinions about um, if that was the right choice for that show. Right. I really liked it, but I did not like Patty in he that role. It felt very out of place okay. and there was no acting happening and I couldn't understand anything she was saying. Okay. And that made it really difficult. But I would be interested to go find that concert and watch that because I bet... Have you not seen it? I haven't seen that, no. Oh, her worst pies in London is a joy. Is her, it? Oh, yes. And just like... Her facial expression, I don't know. There's just something magical. And she's doing it with George Hearn. He comes yeah. back because somebody else dropped out. And so he came in at the Got last it. minute. Because uh, she was supposed to do it with an opera singer. And, oh, okay. Um, that would have been weird. Yeah. She just, she's so lovely. 
in mm. an over the top. I mean, in her Cockney is awful, but like in the, but in the Dick Van Dyke kind of way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like it works. <laughs> and I don't know, just like some of the the way she says lines or sings the I, and there's no sets. And sometimes I hate mm. that, but in this production, like. It is. It feels like Sweeney Todd. Like you don't need anything. I don't know. There's just something about it with that big of an orchestra and with a an A list cast on mm. top of their game. I mean, I, I don't know. It's just. It's. I really enjoy it. So that's that's what. So we should probably get through these clues, right? Heck, yeah, let's do these clues because we this have a really fun show tonight. Oh, and I'm so excited to jump into it. All right, Christina, do you want to start with these or do you want me to? I'll start. Okay, let's do it. Okay. Clue number one, which was at the end of our last episode. The big love duet in this musical was originally called Vampires in Love. And that was followed by our Twitter clue, which was this. One of this musical's book writers adapted 33 musicals for NYC's Encores concert series, which that's insane. It is insane. That's a lot. That's a lot. A lot lot of musicals. All right. Number three was on Instagram, and it was a picture of meatloaf, the food. The food, (laughs) Uh, which was followed by number four on Facebook, uh, which is my blog post, five musical flops directed by Academy Award winning film directors. And number five, while best known for writing hit songs for the likes of meatloaf, the singer. Celine Dion and more. The composer of this musical began his career writing musicals under the mentorship of legendary theater producer Joseph Papp. All right. Do you think they know what it, I think they might know what it I is. I think they might know what this is. Are we ready? Yes. Drum roll, please. <gasps> Dance of the, the Vampires. vampires. I was just going to say, this is a musical that people are, pa- I'm passionate about it, but there are bigger fans than even Bobby for this show. And this, this might be, I venture to say that the the one that has the biggest cult following of anything we've done so far. I would say, yeah. It's uh, maybe, yeah, no, I think it probably surpasses Smile. And Taboo. Even. Yeah, I think so. This is, this is, a, this is more this is global. A, this is, yeah, a global and really passionate. And I just want to say, Christina and I are going to try to get facts as right as possible based on the research we've done. But we don't know all the things. And we encourage you, if you're listening and you know more things than us, reach out to us on social and share them with our fan base because we're only going to get through so much in this episode. Yeah, there's a lot to cover. So, right. And speaking of, Christina, why don't you give them the synopsis? Professor Arbronius, an intensely wacky vampire killer, with his assistant Alfred, arrive in a village where the locals protect themselves with massive amounts of garlic. Yes, they're even jump roping with the garlic. Although the villagers deny any knowledge of vampires, he becomes increasingly suspicious as Alfred is rendered smitten by Sarah, the beautiful teenage daughter of the innkeeper. But Alfred isn't the only one after Sarah. Dun, dun, visited during her bath, cause, you know. Yeah, that happens. She is soon entranced and mesmerized by the extremely cool Count von Krolock. 
The Count can give Sarah what she really craves. More. Sarah has to choose between earthly love with Alfred or eternal passion with Crowlock. The Count sings to Sarah seductively, telling her about the upcoming grand ball, where, in exchange for a small bite, she can become queen of the vampires and rule the world. How can any small town girl resist? The climactic vampire dance erupts as reign of the undead begins and everybody somehow manages to find happiness. Vampire style. So yes, it's a, it's another vampire musical. I mean, we, we decided to cover three this month, but this one uh, deserves its own episode because... It really does. I, I, I'm just going to say it out front. This musical flopped on Broadway, but it's actually one of the most successful musicals ever produced in the history of the world. Which is nuts. I mean, it is so popular. <laughs> in other countries. Everywhere else but America. <laughs> and not in English. like Not in so. English. So we're, we should start at the very beginning, right? Yes. So the Broadway production is loosely based on Roman Polanski's film, The Fearless Vampire Killers, a.k.a. Pardon me, but your teeth are in my neck. I prefer that name. I, I think it was released as that in the United States. Was it? Yes. <laughs> Back in the 1960s. And this is a kooky, kooky, kooky comedy starring Sharon Tate. Over the top, you know, campy film. That yep. was meant to cost less than a million bucks. But as these campy movies do, I think it cost like $2 million to produce in the 60s, which was a lot of money back then. And I don't think it has even made that much money to this very date. But um, it definitely has a cult following. People love it. And obviously yeah. because Roman Polanski is he's an Academy Award winning film director. So yeah. he's not he's not small potatoes. So no. And I mean. Let's look at the history of film, right? Campy films are so loved. They may not oh, yeah. do well right out the gate, but they create that cult following that people just fall in love with and they become infamous and it can even start careers. Oh, you 100%. Know? And so um, it's not surprising that something like this became a sensation. And it is interesting because based on my research, the original version of this musical was produced for Austria. Um, yes. Not for Broadway. It wasn't until success in Austria in the in the mid to late 90s that they were like, oh, we can take this to Broadway. We'll translate it. We'll make it for an American audience and we can take it to Broadway. That It's that good. Um, but the the original um, adaptation of the film to musical was much more serious. Yes. And like had this sense of like tragedy and like trying to fall in love with the vampire ways, you know, and it, and it be this really intense love musical, right? Oh. Like Dracula tried to be, like Lestat tried to be. Well, it's funny you you brought up Lestat. So when I was I was reading that when Polanski and his team were initially approached about doing a musical in Europe, uh, they were inspired, or the team, the people that approached them were inspired by Interview with the Vampire. And I think it was Polanski and his team were like, well, why, why would I do someone else's film when we already got our own 
you know, vampire musical right here. And so they decided to work on this and uh, were initially shopping around. And I actually read that they were looking, they'd whether they contacted or not, before they ended up with Steinman as composer, they had um, thought about Boo Bill and Schoenberg adapting the piece. Oh, okay. Uh, so, I mean, and that would have, in the 90s, been a absolutely like on brand for them, right? Mm. But then Steinman comes to the table and is super interested. And I mean, Steinman's one of the greatest songwriters of all time. Like He really is. And I mean, his rock scores are incredible. Like, I think I, you'd be hard pressed to find someone who doesn't know very well a Jim Steinman song. They might not know he wrote it, but... No, but they would know his music. And we're going right. to talk about one of those songs in tonight's episode. Because <laughs> it's actually in the show. But yes. so, yeah, <laughs> you know, Steinman is like, I started writing for the theater and my whole life I've been trying to write for the theater. Right. And this is going to finally be the one. This is going to be the one that gets it. And you've got an Academy Award winning director and then you've got like a crazy hit songwriter like uh, that sounds like gold to me, right? I think that them all coming together to create this show makes complete sense on paper. Right. Like any producer, any money person would be like, yeah, I mean, it's a little weird, but I think this is going to be incredible. Like this could be one of those shows that comes out of nowhere and hits a home run. And I could totally see where that mindset comes from. Especially yeah. in these early stages. So from there, what happens? So then one of the big things happens that I think plagues the project mm. until the very end is to get everybody on board to Steinman takes like five of his existing songs and puts them in an outline, you know, with book writer Michael Kunze, who is a big deal in Europe, you mm. know, for writing German musicals. And, you know, he takes... A song called Carpe Noctum, Sees the Night, which he had written for Batman Forever, but they didn't use on the soundtrack. Uh, he takes, you know, something known as Bolero that Meatloaf used to open his concerts with. And it's been in, he's recycled it 20,000 times and he calls it eternity and adds lyrics to it. Uh, <laughs> he takes Objects in the Rearview Mirror from Bad Out of Hell 2 right. uh, and rewrites the lyrics. And it's, you know. Crowlock's big act two ballad. Right. And, you know, the biggest one is that he takes Total Eclipse of the Heart because he says, like, look, I went through my catalog and he's like, you might not know this, but I was writing a Nosferatu musical in the 80s. And that's this song where Total was, Eclipse of the Heart comes from. So almost every single hit song Jim Steinman has written for the radio started out in a music. Did you know that? They've all started no. out in musicals. It's all coming back to me now is literally Wendy going back to Neverland. Like What? Yes. Yes. Mind blown. Mind blown. Mind the entire, blown. The entirety of Bad Out of Hell, songs from musicals. He, apparently, he never expected any of these songs to stay in the show. But not only did all of them stay, I think like 70% of the score is somehow recycled, either the lyrics or music from other Steinman projects. Yeah, and you can hear that. You can. Sure. There, there are many times when I was watching this show that I was like, why do I know this song? Why do I know this song? This sounds so familiar. I mean, total the clips of the heart, you can't. There's no disguising it. It is what it is. And he even sings some of the original lyrics from the pop song. So like... Uh 
Yes. I mean, <sighs> we'll 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 get to that when we talk about the reception on Broadway. But in yeah. Europe, people dig this. You know what I mean? The familiarity probably helped this become a huge hit because mm. you think of shows that do really well in Europe, you think of like Greece is always touring in Europe. Hair is always touring in Europe. Mamma Mia. Like Jekyll how, and Hyde. One, like the familiar is such a yeah. a big thing in the foreign language market in Europe specifically. So yeah. I think this show, whether they had planned it or not, tapping into it, it becomes gigantic, right? Um, oh, yeah. The first thing that they did was they went to Austria. And that ran for three years, that production. Yeah, crazy. Three years. And then from there, it went to Germany, where it ran for another three years. And both of those places have had multiple revivals since then, all the way up until recently in 2019. And that, that show is called Tanz der Vampire, which does translate to the Dance of the Vampires. But... Dance, you vampires, dance. So, yeah, of course, Broadway producers, you've got an American songwriter. You've got, I mean, Roman Polanski is not American, but he is an Academy Award winning. And he directed both of the productions, right, in Austria and Germany. Yes. Um, And he was supposed to, so during the Austrian production, I think about a year in, they were like, oh, no, this can be transferred. We can take this to Broadway. We can make this happen. And so they started that process um, of trying to determine what they were going to do to change it for an American market, aside from translate it, obviously, right. um, and what that would look like, right? So they started brainstorming and working. Uh, I know Steinman was working with his managers mm -hmm. creatively on it, and they definitely wanted Polanski to be a part of it. And so they started that process and one of the reasons why it didn't go to Broadway at that point in time was because I couldn't get Polanski into the country to right. actually do the workshops and do the work to make the show. And so then they had to go back to the drawing board to find another director, someone who would attach themselves to the project. Well, and that's where things kind of start going off the rails. Because even when Polanski was involved, of the team... Jim Simon was the one with the most American theater experience. And right. what that theater experience was, was writing crazy musicals for Joe Papp at the public theater and, at the you know, Shakespeare in the Park in yeah. the 70s. Like, and then Whistle Down the Wind, which closed in D.C. before it made it to Broadway. Um, <laughs> and then a lot of, like, abandoned musicals like Nosferatu or Batman the Musical, which will become a right. threat, threat on this episode because yep. a lot of it was recycled into this. But he was the one with the most experience. Right. And so when Polanski wasn't involved, Jim Steinman stepped forward and said, I'm going to direct this show on Broadway. Right. And he knew he needed to find a new book writer, which was the next step. Uh, yes. And that was how David Ives came to be a part of the team. Yes. Because he and, trusted David Ives. He yep. respected his work and he got his comedy. That was a big thing is mm. they were going to make it more comedic for Broadway uh, because the European production is very fun. serious. So, yes. Funny at parts, but it's a it's a very serious vampire musical. No, they, they it's very grounded. Yes. Um, Which is interesting because I did go and find some bootlegs of the different productions that have been done over mm -hmm. the years and the makeup and the hair is very over dramatized right 
and the costumes are very dramatized, but all of the acting and the book feel very grounded. And it somehow works. Like, even though I have no idea what they're saying, like, you can visually, you know what's happening. 100%. It, it is a very well put together musical. Mm. Yeah, it's honed, it's crafted, they know what it is. But when they were working on the book, they did. They wanted to bring in some of the camp that was in the original film. Right. Which I think is smart, you know? I don't know that American audiences would ever take... I mean, we saw this with Dracula and Lestat. Taking it too seriously doesn't work for the greater American audience. So I think that was the right choice, right? Yeah, they decided to make it campy, and David Ives can definitely do very... Smart comedy. Mm -hmm. That's one of his, you know, MOs as a playwright. It's one of the uh, things about the show that I enjoyed the most were some of the jokes. I, so they bring David Ives in. Interesting fact, Steve Barton from Phantom of the Opera mm -hmm. stars as Crowlock in Europe and is expected to do it on Broadway, but he's not a household name. And right. when you when they lost Polanski as director, there was this push, like, we, we need to make this a star vehicle. And at some point, Michael Crawford gets brought up into the mix. And Well, I, you I, know the other people that were brought up, right? I've seen a list, but you tell me, because I don't remember them off the top of my head. Bowie? Oh, yes. David Travolta? Bowie. <laughs> But I would have actually, that would have been amazing. Richard Gere? Okay, that makes no sense to me. None at whatsoever. all. <laughs> I would pick Victor Garber before I picked Richard Gere. Like if oh, we're going Victor that dire direction, you know? Late um, 90s Victor Garber would have been good in this. I mean, he was king of Broadway. Let's be yes, honest. I mean. Um, Placido Domingo. <laughs> okay, wonderful. You know, so those were the those were the top four that they were trying to get, and none of that was landing. So then they went the phantom route and said, okay, let's get Michael Crawford, which I find interesting because their whole thing was trying to find a household name. And I don't know, late 90s into early 2000s, if Michael Crawford was a household okay. name. So have you ever been to the flea market, the Broadway Cares Equity Fights Aid flea market? Once. Did you see the table hosted by Michael Crawford fans? No. Okay, so they exist and they are passionate. And you have to remember that this is right after Joel Schumacher released the Phantom movie that Michael Crawford yes. had been replaced by Gerard Butler. Yes, I remember all this. So they were all very impassioned. Like, if there had been some, like, weaning off, you know, Phantom 10 years later, the Michael Crawford fan base was was lit with fire like how dare they not put him in this movie and so there they were there was a hunger for for some michael crawford on wow. the broadway okay i just didn't that was not my impression of michael crawford um at that time <laughs> he's he's got fans that's all that's all i gotta say which i understand look the man is talented what i found interesting was his demands did you see these oh Yes, ridiculous. I mean, how yeah. much money did he initially request? He wanted $180,000 a week That's for a three-year run. Okay. As well as control over all aspects of the character and script, which he was granted. I Yes, yeah, so he wasn't given 180000 I think he was no, given... No, they negotiated him down to 30000 a week. Insane. Is still insane. It's insane. 
insane. No wonder the show didn't survive. Simply trying to pay him oh would my gosh. put them in the ground. But then he also asked for first refusal rights for the LA and London productions, which he was convinced were happening. And then also required that if the show be turned into a film, he be given the oh. role. Because well, he was burned. Because he just got burned, like you said, from the Phantom film. Look, I will say, I remember hearing this in an interview and also talking to him about it because I worked with him. I stage managed a show he directed. Uh-huh. Rob Evan, who was um, Michael Crawford's understudy in the show, mm-hmm. famously was one of the Jekyll and Hyde's on Broadway, really good friends with Frank Wildhorn, really good friends with Jim Steinman, has recorded a lot of demos for Jim Steinman, uh, was asked to be the cover for this. And at that point in his career, he's like, I can't do the understudy thing anymore. It's time for me to like lead roles on Broadway. Like if if you don't make that choice at a certain point, you may never get to make that choice. And I remember hearing him talk about it was, he had to talk to his wife and he had to have a, like a, a soul searching moment. He's like, He's like, this is going to put braces on our kids. This is going to, this is going to pay for their college. This is going to buy us a house outside the city. Like, I don't, I I can't say no to this. So even he was like, it's not wanting to take an understudy, but like when offered this show, you know, before more drama happens, right. Was convinced it was like you winning the lottery, you know? Wow. Like this is, this is the one, this is it. How fascinating. Because he was going to get to replace Michael Crawford, too. Right, which so makes like, sense. I mean, that happens right. a lot, right? The first cover generally sure. does. Um, so long as it doesn't take two years to get there. <laughs> this is all happening. They finally get a director and a choreographer, and they get the team from Urinetown. Well, you know, before that, it was supposed to be John Caird. Oh, right. But he couldn't get into the country from London because of 9-11. That's right. So it got pushed when they couldn't get Polanski into the country. And yes. so it gets pushed again and again, trying to find your star. You found your star. And they were like, okay, we're going to open the fall of 2001. Right. And then, of course, September 11th happens. And there is no way to make that happen no. because of the tragedy in New York and what was going on. And so then they said, okay, we're going to push it to the beginning of 2002 so we can get it in before the Tony deadline. And then they couldn't get people into the country, a.k.a. the director. Even Steinman had issues, right? Yeah. Um, Like, it was really difficult. And so then they had to push it all the way to October of 2002, which is not a good time to open a new musical that's unknown, in my opinion. Especially if you're trying to really get it in there for the Tonys. Like, that's... Because then you're going right into holiday season, which is then when everything falls flat, right? Like, even the big shows don't make any money in those first couple of weeks on the changeover of the year, right? Oh, yeah. But they ended up getting the director, John Rando, and the choreographer, John Karoff. They were the team from Urinetown. Makes sense. Dark, weird, quirky musical. That makes sense. Except they hadn't worked on anything this big. No, Urinetown was so tiny. And this is like, this is an epic mega musical. And this is Phantom. I mean, yeah. as much as Michael Crawford doesn't want it to be Phantom, it's Phantom. Like, it's Phantom with vampires. Uh, and that's what it needed to be. Like, if they had yeah. made it Phantom with vampires, it would have run for at least a couple years. That's all. Right. Anyway. Because 
phantom. The two of them were definitely in over their heads. And according to everything I read, it was very evident that they were in over their heads. Oh, and yeah, at some point, because they didn't know what they were doing, they locked Steinman out. And Steinman may not have been oh, no. the strong, strongest, like person to shep like to oversee the entire project but at this point when you've got all these new people who don't have history with the show he probably is the only one with any kind of wherewithal to at least attempt to fix things in any kind of honest way well and, and michael crawford was demanding changes left right and center to the character oh. in the book and david ives was like i was a stenographer uh, that's my favorite quote he's like i'm not a book writer i'm a stenographer <laughs> like apparently at one point Michael Crawford de demanded that there be at least five jokes on every page of the script oh my and gosh apparently he paid because I don't know what his current wealth status is but Phantom made him very wealthy at this right. point in time yeah um he paid for everyone to go get a go to a private screening of Mel Brooks's Dracula Dead and Loving It being like, this is what I want my musical to be like, which, first of all, the movie doesn't even feel very Mel Brooks-ish. But I mean, look, the producers was one of the biggest hits at the time. So I, I don't know if I blame him for wanting to, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, one of the reviews I read said that it's like they tried to take Mel Brooks and Anne Rice and put them together. <laughs> that explains. I was like, ah. okay. So I think we should pause <laughs> talking about like the historical stuff on the show, and let's sure. talk about the show itself, and then we can get back to okay the 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 because there's so much like like meat to sink our fangs into, right? <laughs> of like the magic of Dance of the Vampires, because that's what I think persists in so many people's heads is. Despite everything, like we've talked now about three vampire musicals on this podcast. Yeah. I'm going to flat out say, I think this one has the strongest score oh, of the three. Hands down. I think it's the strongest like overall show of the three. Oh, in every aspect, I think choreography, yeah. even the direction, if it misses the mark, the sets, the costumes. Those sets are stunning. Nang. Well, and fun fact about the set designer, he was the one who um did the set design for like Meatloaf uh really? Bad Out of Hell um music video. Really? Yeah. And he had fallen he had done that job because he had fallen in love with the artwork, which Steinman actually sure. yeah, which Steinman I guess had had a hand in. I don't know if he like actually drew some of it or but he he was heavy-handed in that. Mm -hmm. And so um was like over the moon when he got that job. And then Steinman was like, I really, I loved what you did with Bad Out of Hell. What do you think about doing this? And he was like, never done a musical before. That sounds fun. <laughs> I was okay. like, gung ho about it. Um, but yeah, I loved the sets. I thought the sets were really stunning. They were a good mix of like a Beauty and the Beast meets Sweeney Todd. And that's the perfect way to describe this show because because I want to talk about the score. I think the score is like... The score is fun. Amazing. Watching it, because I, I rewatched a bootleg from Broadway today and then listened mm -hmm. to the entire German cast recording. This show, and I don't normally think of Jim Steinman as feeling like Disney, but mm. this show felt very Beauty and the Beast. And it made me a little bit sad that he never wrote a Disney film because as much as there's like the power ballad, like rock stuff in Dance of the Vampires... Over half of it is like that 
faux Gilbert and Sullivan that Alan Menken and, and Howard Ashman did so well. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like a lot of the scores that shockingly, like you think of Total Eclipse of the Heart and Bad Out of Hell and Holding Out for a Hero. And those exist in this show in some fashion. But they really do. But like I think of like um the garlic song, which is the a lot garlic of garlic song. It's so fun. It's like the village song in um in Beauty and the Beast, or yes. not the village song, the one with the cups. a guest on. Yes, guest Thank on. You. <laughs> no, I could do it, the choreography. <laughs> you could do you are doing the choreography right now. But that one, the Gilbert and Sullivan, the logic, which is kind of a little bit of modern major general. Mm-hmm. Um Milady, which is not was not even written for the show, but well, it's and not. what is the one in her bedroom when they're all singing their own motif? Oh, I love that song. Oh, not uh, the, making me to... the barmaid like sits on her while she's passed out on the bed. <laughs> okay, that I didn't quite like understand. I was like, they skimped out. That should have been a different set at this point. Yeah, but um, there's never been a night like this. I love yes. that song, and so I for- fun. forgot it existed until today. When I was watching it, and the I was like, The other oh. one I really love, and I just want to say it before we get too far away from it, is the opening sequence. Yeah, so you know that's from Batman, right? It is. <laughs> so Angels Arise. So when the show is in Europe, it opens with the professor and Alfred. Right. And they sing a song called like, Hey Ho Hey or something. Yeah, yeah, that is yeah. also lovely. But Angels Arise with them picking the mushrooms and the one girl like the comedic <laughs> relief saying the mushrooms the magical mushrooms that feels so funny you guys. <laughs> i ate oh, all the mushrooms I oh my gosh was dead i was laughing so hard because you have M- mandy gonzalez who's like being that like you know lustful wonderful ingenue that you want for something like this you know like little red on crack is there and then you have (laughs) you had her best friend who was so kooky and out of left field (laughs) eating the mushrooms i couldn't but it weirdly works it works it totally works and i was like this is gonna be a good show and then there are moments where i'm like this is not gonna be a good show um but I also will say is that the choreography in those opening sequences is so brilliant and technical. And based on everything I've read, apparently that's more um, a tribute to the dancers that were hired than it was okay. to the choreographer. There was a lot of, hey, stand there and rock on. Oh, no. Yeah, which as a dancer, I would throw my hands up and be like, no, that's that you did not hire me to choreograph. Um, but <laughs> different conversation. Um no, but it the that sequence and the way that the those dancers moved in that opening sequence was so cool. It was so beautiful. No, I it, it remind it when I watch it because I watched it again for the many <laughs> manyth time. Um, the choreography in the show is to me is like this is what cats should be. This is what cats oh, should be because yeah. it's very technical. It's got a lot of ballet and jazz influences, but also a lot of like rock influences in mm-hmm. it. It's, and it's acrobatic. It was very Mia Michaels. Ah, yeah. Okay. I'll give it, you that. Like it looked like early Mia Michaels to me. Okay. And I actually like had to go and look it up to make sure I wasn't. That she wasn't. That she wasn't involved. That being said, you get to the end of the show and the choreography is non-existent. <laughs> oh, it's step touch, step touch point. Yeah. Um, okay. It's so weird. <laughs> Uh, yes. Oh my goodness. Well, yeah, it has its moments. You know, it, you can tell that 
whoever the cast, I guess, ran out of steam and was like, well, there you oh. go. Oh, yeah. And, but um, no, there's so many gems in the score, you know, on top of the ones that really rock a little bit. I, braver than the than we are. Um, so I good. Don't, I don't know why that's not sung more in concerts and benefits and tributes, because to me, it's just as effective, if not blasphemous, more effective than All I Ask of You or, oh, you know, yeah. some of those other 80s mega musical. It's, like, it has way more meat to it than those. Oh, yeah. And, and just she's, when the, she's a smarter character. Yes. Oh, uh, yeah. It just there, there's there's a lot of really good music in this show. I really yeah. like how they they begin the closing number with that solo she has where she's like fully given into being a vampire and she bites <laughs> Alfred. Okay. Oh my gosh. That like take that out of context of the show. And I'm like, that should be every like Beltris's rock audition song. I mean it's 32 it's, bars. It's funny it's you mentioned so that. well written for a woman's voice. I mean, it's fantastic. It's it's so it wasn't written for Dance of the Vampires. That's of why. course it wasn't. Um, it's from an 80s movie called Streets of Fire. And the song is originally called Tonight is What It Means to Be Young. This is the fifth one that was in that outline. Uh -huh. And in Europe, it was originally the professor starting the song. And it had completely right, different lyrics. There's it's not an, as effective. No, there's an English demo of it. And then I guess someone got the idea. This is what I've read. Someone got the idea that it needed to be Mandy, had to be the vampire queen before they go into the epilogue, which I know you want to talk about. Oh my um, gosh. But D Steinman didn't want to change the lyrics back. So I guess he was like, fine, I'm just going to use the uh, original lyrics and I'm going to cross out either like motorcycle or boy and I'm going to put vampire. So it's right. like, got a dream about a vampire in a castle. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> but it's just, it's otherwise it's a song from Streets of Fire, uh, which sheet music is readily available online, ladies. So if yes, you want to add it to I your book. I found it. If anyone great. wants to reach out, I've got it. Because as soon as I heard it, I was like, so that goes in my book. <laughs> there's a, there's also another song in the movie called Nowhere Fast, which you should find on YouTube. That doesn't appear in Dance of the Vampires as a song, but the doom, 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 right. doom that's in Dance of the Vampires. Right. But that the actual song part doesn't. Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> okay. Since we're on the closer, let's okay. talk about it for two seconds. I understand intellectually that they're trying to do what they did with Lestat, which is you live forever. And I've never seen a vampire in a city, I think is mentioned at some point. And <laughs> yeah. so they show what would happen if vampires took over the world. And so the backdrop becomes New York, but run by vampires. And instead <laughs> of cats, it's, it's bats, bats, <laughs> and instead of ESPN, it's VSPN. Yes. I mean, and the song. Okay, so there is, I watched the bootleg. I think we watched the same bootleg. And I think that's from previews because everyone is so excited on stage and the audience is in it to win it. Like it was an in it to win it night. But then there's a separate, like just the finale, okay. which is actually a really decent like well recorded right version and they look so bored i so, mean <laughs> yes so i think we did watch the same video i do think it's a preview because and the reason i think it's a preview is early in the show when crowlock meets sarah they mm. do a little bit of the famous like will you offer you, me your neck and the blah 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 blah, blah which blah. was hilarious from bad out of hell the album now in yeah. the musical I don't think that survived until opening night. 
Oh, um, really? Yeah. I, I had read, and again, there are people who know more about this musical than I do. I had heard that was part of Jim Steinman's attempt and they let him to save the show at some point is I'm just going to, I'm going to put anything that's ever worked successfully in my catalog into this show. Right. And so all those monologues he wrote from his albums right. were, were tried. And that's one of the most famous ones. I don't think it made it to opening night though. Oh, that's um, too bad. Cause that's some of that stuff was like, what I was like, well, this is actually pretty successful. This is, <laughs> There's a lot of this that you, works. You want that show. No, that preview audience or whoever's in that, they love the show. It actually loved it. It made the experience watching and listening to it. It made me appreciate the material in such a different way because the only time I felt that audience was not on the same team as the show yeah. was Total Eclipse of the Heart. That's because when you heard, it feels so strange. That, the rest that was of like, it. I was going to say that was just mean laughter. Like everything else was like laughing where you're supposed to laugh, but the mm -hmm. opening bars of the dumb bum 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 bum, that's when you hear the laughter come from a different place. And I felt bad for the actors on stage because it feels like a spoof. Everything yeah. else, even though it's from an, his catalog, you know, even if it's recycled, it's recycled so well that you're like, oh, this kind of seems familiar, but I'm right. I'm not jarred by it. The minute Total Eclipse of the Heart starts, I'm like. Did we just jump into a parody musical and I didn't know it? <sighs> Did we? Are we watching yeah. a jukebox musical? And I, it confused me. Okay. It actually confused me. And at first I was like, oh, it's a joke. He's going to break out of it and make a joke. And then he didn't. It was serious. And I was like, okay, that feels like such a strange, well, and it was strange so, choice. Oh, it was also one of the worst stage musical numbers in the entire show. They yeah. literally just awkwardly look at each other on opposite sides of the stage. <laughs> There's... There's no, there's no fog. There's no like caressing. Like to me, if you're going to do it, it needs to feel like an eighties music video. If you're going to oh, make that yeah. moment work and Mandy starts it in a campy way, her eyes. I mean, she really, she does a lot with her eyes in the show, but I think for young Mandy Gonzalez is, is it's interesting. I was, it's yeah. Strong. I was surprised at how well she took to the spoofy mm -hmm. campy vibe. That's not how I know her now. Right. right? Um, and so I found that really interesting. So I should also say that the first time I was introduced to this musical yep. was <laughs> when I was doing Jersey Boys, one of the other male swings. Um, we were bored one night and we like had nothing to do. And he was like, well, I'm watching Dance of the Vampires. And I was like, what the heck is Dance of the Vampires? <laughs> and he was like, oh, it's it's the bootleg of the Broadway show. And I was like, there's a Broadway show about vampires that are dancing and he was like yeah just come here so I show up and it's act two when he's watching oh it. god okay and so I missed all of the setup and this was from post opening night I think because it was okay. not the same video that I watched for prep for this episode and it was real awkward because of how old Crawford looks next to young I, Mandy Gonzalez. I know. And, and it, it bothers like, me a lot. What's happening? And I'm, you know, it felt so strange and she looked uncomfortable in this particular video. Mm -hmm. And maybe that was me like putting my own stuff on it, but it was like, what's going on? And then I had heard totally clips of the heart. And I was like, Oh, it's a parody musical. And uh, Jeremy was like, no, it's not a parody musical. And I was like, but they're singing a pop song. And he was like, yeah, it's fine. And I was like, it, 
Okay. And it was very confusing. So then like entering into the research for the episode and actually starting at the beginning, which helps, I was like, oh, okay. Total Eclipse of the Heart still feels out of place. Okay. It still feels right. like it should not be there. Okay. There are better options. The writers are better than that. Okay. I mean, yeah, I think it works, which is probably why it got kept. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I kind of, I don't know. I, I, I either picture vampires or I picture that scene in Urban Legend. Is it Urban Legend where she's singing in her car? You don't, you don't do the horror movies, do you? I don't like, do no. the horror movies. I, I'm like, someone's going to tell me that it's like, Bobby, it's, I know what you did last summer. No, it's, <laughs> I think it's Urban Legend and she didn't check the backseat of her car. Yes, because that's an urban legend, right? And she's singing it in the car and she's crying. It's like, and I need you now. So I either think of vampires or that. That was a long-winded way to say that. <laughs> but um, I think that, that, I mean, I think Jim Steinman is a fantastic composer. He is. Maybe it is cheap for him to utilize this. I don't care if he wrote it for Nosferatu, you know? Yeah. yeah, I get it as a joke. Like, it feels like something you would do in like one of the parody cab burlesque Okay. Shows that like Cherry Poppins does, like it totally right. fits that vibe. But because they the because the book was so strong at the beginning, and the original music that they wrote for the show mm -hmm. was so strong that it just felt like this weird undercut to the audience. Like right. I was on board, I was on board, I was here for it. Even the camp, even the fun, like I, I, it was exciting. Even the grounded moments that they managed to find, right. which is actually how you keep an audience interested in camp, right? Right. Even Rocky Horror and Reefer Madness have those moments. Well, uh, Rocky Horror is terrifying because Tim Curry is a Shakespearean actor. Right. It's, everything around him is very campy, but he is very serious about mm -hmm. every single thing that he does in that musical, which is oh, why yeah. I don't think Michael Crawford works in this role, because I think your Crowlock needs to be Frankenfurter. Yeah. The world around him needs to be crazy, but his, to talk about the finale, I, I, I pulled a U this week. Oh. Um, <laughs> I was, I changed the subject. Uh, you know, the whole basic plot is that the, the, the total eclipse of the moon is coming. And if he can suck the blood of a virgin on the total eclipse of the moon and make her the queen of the vampires, then the vampires can have their day in the sun. Daylight doesn't kill them anymore and they'll take over the world. And so in this musical, he does technically turn her, but Alfred and the professor get there and they break the window and the, the sun comes on and we think Crowlock dies, but what they don't realize is he's already fulfilled the prophecy because he's already turned Sarah. And so the epilogue is them showing like, haha, they didn't get Crowlock after all. And that's why Michael Crawford comes out of the orchestra pit at the end. And he's like, I'm still here. That's that's what's going on there. You're confused. Uh, I, I'm not confused. I just it's contrived. <laughs> OK, again, the rest of the beginning, this, the beginning of this show starts so strong. Right. That first act is so strong. And then it just like it's like it, they gave up. It's yeah. like you're watching the journey of how the show was created while watching the show. You know what I mean? They're all excited. They're here for it. They're doing oh, their no. thing. And then like slowly the wheels start to fall off and things start to get hectic and weird and not sure what's happening. And then by the end of it, everyone is given up. Like watching that sequence on YouTube of just the finale where it's close up on people. And there I've are literally that. dancers who are hunched over and being like, 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm not singing <laughs> watermelon, watermelon, watermelon. Like it is so horrible. So in that song, there are some interesting things that were put there, including when they start chanting, we're, we'll drink your blood and then we'll eat your soul. Nothing's going to stop us. We're not the singing bat- it. No. And there's like riffs that happen. And depending on what, what recording and when, like sometimes the riffs are really fierce and sometimes you're like, Oh, those were notes. Yeah. Those, this, were, those this you recording, sang some notes. There were no riffs and oh, uh, uh, most of them were not singing the correct harmonies oh, and no. did not hit the right notes. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. It was uh, bad. No. And that's such a good song too. So it's like not the, the chanting part, but the rest of the song. No, the rest of it is actually there. The, when you catch the lyrics, they're pretty clever, but there right. is no heart in it. There is no excitement no energy and it's which is always sad i it makes me sad to see anyone who has made it to a broadway stage because it's so hard oh, to yeah. get there and see them give up is right. like oh man i just that hurts my soul <laughs> no and and yeah i can't even imagine what it meant to be in the the mindset of a lot of these people cuz i think a lot of them were young, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of these dancers were young, either in, you know, one of their first Broadway shows, if not the first Broadway show that they were ever in. And um, people hated it. Yeah, it's probably one of those things. If you know what's going on backstage, it's going right. to color your perception of what's happening on stage. Right. You know, I mean, so this show had 61 previews. Yeah, that's unprecedented. <laughs> like, yeah. And then it didn't open till December 2002 and then closed after 56 performances. Uh, that's so crazy. And I looked, their most successful week, they made about $800,000. So they almost made a million bucks on their most successful week. Um, that's pretty good. Up until they closed, they were making half a million dollars a week. I mean, it just they, when you're paying most of it to Michael Crawford, that's hard yeah. to stay open. But um, Well, I mean, they they lost $12 million. Yeah, uh, and I think that I was reading that, um, you know, gross. So this is before paying anybody. They made about like eight or nine million of it back. But you know, by the time you pay for Michael Crawford and <laughs> the rest of the salaries and you know other costs, I I don't know how much was was returned to the investors as far as um, recouping. But well, they said it's one of the costliest failures in Broadway history, up there with Carrie. Oh yeah, I think this officially was like. Past Carrie. Past Carrie. Like, this was like the, I think there were even jokes in the, because I, because I graduated from high school in 2003, not to date myself, but totally (laughs) date myself. So I was, I discovered it like soon after it was on Broadway. And there was talk about republishing Not Since Carrie and calling it Not Since Dance of the Vampires. Oh, man. Wow. It is interesting to like watch it without thinking about any of that and Mm -hmm. seeing the potential in the show. Because there is so much potential. Like, I feel like if they had done an out-of-town tryout... Yes. ...and had gotten the reins on Crawford, it it just wasn't... It wasn't his role. No. And I just... Everything's wrong about it, other than the fact that he played the Phantom. But then him coming in and wanting to make it a madcap Mel Brooks comedy, then it's like, well, we wanted the Phantom. So you're not the Phantom. Next. Um, uh, No. Okay. So obviously this show flops on Broadway, but it is still so successful in Europe all these years later. Like, do you think that this show could ever be revived either in the United States or in England? Because maybe maybe it's a West End show. 
maybe. I think that it has a possibility. And I think especially if they're able to call some of the jokes that they did find that really worked for the uh-huh. Broadway production and refinesse the script, I think that there's something to that. And, you know, I think I'm never, it's never going to lose Total Eclipse of the Heart, like, because it's in the German version that is successful. And so I think that finding a way to maybe finesse that a bit so it doesn't feel so out of left field, which could come from direction. Um, But I think that this totally has the opportunity. I don't know that it has the opportunity to be revived in New York because of how badly it was received by critics and the industry there were right. a lot of fans who loved it right but the actual industry really had um so i think that it could totally have a revival in london especially because london loves camp and loves farce yes. i actually think that it would be very successful there especially if you cast it right um you know i I think that that actually would work really well. Yeah, I I agree. I think I think London makes sense and then if it's a hit there bring it to Broadway. I think yeah. at this point you need to hire and I don't know if it's two different people or one person, but I think th- and they can't have any previous history with the project. Mm-hmm. I think someone to come in and adjust lyrics and a new book writer. Like I think with fresh do you eyes. Think, do you think David Ives could still do it? I think David Ives could. I just don't know if the experience has been tainted. I mean, he is fantastic. But, you know, I think, look, you can either make this a serious musical, which the European version is, or do you go full Rocky Horror with it? And and I don't think David Ives is Rocky Horror. I mean, that's when you get into like Douglas Carter Beanland, right? I think someone needs to come in from the outside and say, look, there is... And there's so much music to choose from, too, you know, from so much, even if you go back to Steinman's catalog, which I mean, that's basically what he did anyway. But, right. uh, you know, the music is, I think, the the nuts and bolts. So and musically, even on Broadway, if you cut out the scenes and you cut out the everything, the songs that were on Broadway tell a very complete story, you know, very much so and really effective for the most part. So it's like someone to come in and fill in those gaps and maybe maybe fix the lyrics maybe for the familiar stuff maybe it doesn't need to be on on the nose like you mm-hmm. probably don't know the song original sin not being in this show but no. it's a pre-existing pop song that um has some vampirisms thrown in but but it, then it, it works. I mean, he's looking for a virgin. He's looking for the original sin. So Yeah, no, that one didn't bother me too much. Again, okay. I think because of how famous Total Eclipse is right. and how it's been parodied in so many other realms, it just mm-hmm. felt strange. Right. So we were talking about the success of this show outside of Broadway and bringing it back and because it's been still so successful, even up right. to last year. Um what do you think it is about these kinds of musicals in Germany? Like Hasselhoff and Jekyll, like what is that? <laughs> I mean, they love Hasselhoff in Germany. They do. Uh, well, they love Frank Wildhorn. They do. They love Rocky was a big hit there and not mm. on Broadway. Yep. I don't have all of the information to speak very educated about it, but you've got a 
country that was torn apart due to the Cold War, you know, with mm. the Berlin Wall and a lot of like not so great stuff for a very long period of time. And then you have the opening of Germany and um, the embracing of a lot of American, a lot of Americana. I don't know. I mean, I think I think the familiarity that didn't work on Broadway probably really worked for German audiences. Yeah. I think hearing Total Eclipse, I think they got it. I think they probably thought thought to themselves like this is done on purpose like this is what we're going to connect to we know this one you know there's also something about the i don't want to say melodrama because that seems to dumb it down but right. even with jekyll rocky and this and even lestat and um dracula which is so right. popular over there as well mm -hmm. there is this sense of melodrama and grounding it because it is very grounded. I watched some of some clips from the German productions, right. and even though it's there and it's heightened, it's it never feels uncomfortable, right? And so I'm wondering if it has to do with their style of theater. Well, yeah. I look. I look. I think it's been cut from every episode I've mentioned in it, but here it goes again. Um, you know, when I worked on The Visit on Broadway, uh, you know, The Visit is a famous Central European play. And mm. it has had some successful productions in New York. But the musical, I almost think that they should have done it in Germany first. You know, the it is so dark and it is so... <sighs> Germany is an interesting place because they have been literally at the top of the world. and you know, at the bottom at the of bottom. everybody's list of favorite countries on the planet. Right. Um, and I don't, have you met, like, have you met a lot of German people? I have, cause I work in tourism. Um, um, I had dinner next to a German family in Hobbiton. Okay. <laughs> and how, I, like, what was your impression of the German family? They were so lovely. They were the okay. nicest people. They were so kind. We talked about beer which, you know, seems cliche, but totally did. We sat and chatted about beer. Yeah. Um, and they were just really kind, lovely humans. Yeah, I I think it's a country with a with a difficult history. I think it's a very intelligent country. You know, mm -hmm. they, they really work hard to educate their populace. Um, I think they work really hard and I think they enjoy entertainment. You know what I mean? I think they really rely on that entertainment I mean, Germans, they work very hard. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, they like, do. And they're like, they learn like six languages growing up. Like They do. Insane. It's crazy. And it's just standard. Fluently. Like yeah. fluently. Like to the point where they speak English with barely a German accent. You know what oh, I mean? totally. Do you think it's that the Americans just take it all too seriously? Like there's already a shutdown that happens the minute they hear vampire and musical together. Yeah, I th I think so. I think that unless it was the producers, I don't know if people were going to embrace this show. So maybe that's why Michael Crawford was like, "You you need to do Mel Brooks because that's that's what people are going to expect when they hear there's a vampire musical on Broadway." Again, I think that he had the right idea. I just think that there were too many cooks in the kitchen, and there was no one taking the lead. Anyways, before we head off to the crypt, um, I yeah. just want—I just want to say, um, take a moment to mention Jim and his passing this year and the legacy he's left us with. I mean, it really is incredible, and we we owe a lot to him. 
I feel like people don't talk about it enough. One thing that I, in preparing for t- for this episode, you know, I know we finally got Bad Out of the Hell, the musical. I know it was very well received in the UK. Very different opinion here in the United States, but it's it's very much alive. The musical's still happening. I almost think that what would have been more effective than that, and maybe maybe we wouldn't have known that until Jim passed, was when he built this show, when he finally got Bad Out of Hell, the musical on stage, I've said, I I don't know if I've said it, but you know, people say he recycles material, but it's almost like his material has just been evolving mm-hmm. since he started his career because so much of it goes from those seeds of those early projects he did for Joe Papp because a lot of it starts there, even mm-hmm. if it's just the accompaniment or, you know, um, a lyric that he ends up putting in a different, it, they th- those songs really evolve, you know? to where they sat in Dance of the Vampires and where they sat in Bad Out of Hell, the musical. I agree. His music is so much fun. That's how I would like to remember Jim. Yeah, I think it's a perfect tribute that we've decided to cover the show and to talk about Jim around Halloween because everything he's done has kind of been touched with that dark gothic, but also just beautiful. I, I don't know. I, I think it's the perfect show. We've waited. We've waited to cover Jim yep. and this show until now. And I'm glad that we did because spooky season is the perfect time to pay tribute. Dust off those bad out of hell LPs. Put them on. And watch that music video for Total Eclipse of the Heart that has the most random 80s cutaways. And uh, remember Jim. Well, Flopaholics, that is our episode on the Vampires Who Dance. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we love that you joined us for our second spooky episode uh, and that you're still actively listening to this show, which, Christina, where can they listen to this podcast? Wherever you're listening to it now. Exactly. You're already doing it. And of course, you can find us um, all over social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok sometimes. Um... We love when you guys comment and we think that this one is going to spark a really fascinating conversation. If we got anything wrong, please forgive us now. Forgive us now and let us know what it was. Uh, We love hearing from you guys. Also, don't forget to click the subscribe button wherever you listen to this podcast, as well as leaving us a five-star review because it helps us make more more and more and speaking of more Christina I think it's about time that I give them the clue for the next episode please do Bobby okay and so the first clue for episode 20 because we're finally at episode 20 which is super exciting is this Bobby aka me has mentioned this show 18 times on this podcast and this is a Thanksgiving gift from our EP Stephen Weston to him And I'm so excited because I didn't think we were going to get to cover this one until next year. So thank you, Stephen. I appreciate it. (laughs) He heard your prayers and he's answering them. All right, Christina, do you have any parting words for our listeners today? So what if I don't know where Hadestown is? It's not the end of the world. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.